0: passage here this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 picking up where we left off last week Um, I literally ran out of time at a perfect spot right at a paragraph break so we were working through chapter 14 where Paul continues to set the stage of what the challenges are within the Corinthian church and This particular paragraph we look at here, starting in verse 14, sets up chapters 5 and 6 even more specifically. It's as if it's a final uh, wrap-up, and then he goes into the morality issues that are found within the church itself. He starts off verse 14 saying, I don't write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you as my beloved children. Um, When he says, I do not write these things, what are the these? What is he referring to? What has he been saying so far? I want to make sure you're all kind of caught up in, in the mindset of the text. What are these things? And he's not writing these things to make them ashamed. So what has he Said that could possibly have shamed them. Maybe we are in this common world. Hmm? Maybe the, the line, uh, we have become and are still like this common world, of refuse of all people. Sure. I mean, he's being very specific, saying you're spiritual babies. You haven't grown up. And, you know, when you get scolded, you feel bad. Now, We have to be very careful in our modern day that we don't take our English words like shame and apply them as if it's the same experience, feeling, etc. that it would have been in that day. Now there's echoes, of course. Because what has happened in our society, shame is considered bad. Don't shame me. Don't make me feel bad about what I've done. If you do, you're being mean. That's how we look at it, yeah. Give me a safe place. Right, right. In other words, just don't make, or as had, you know, some who will be uh, left unnamed, but there are certain pastors and teachers out there that never challenge their congregation. They don't want to make them feel bad. The idea is that Sunday morning is a time to lift them up and make them feel great about themselves so they can walk out in the world. And it's also interesting to note, I've watched this for many, many, many years, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but you can have the pastor who gets really worked up, and it's a passage that's talking about behavior or sin, and he starts really hitting it, and then he stops and looks at the aghast crowd and saying well I don't want to leave you with that so and then he tries to either soften it or pull back just because you don't want to say you're all sinners and going to hell now let's pray because <laughs> no one will want to shake his hand on the way out <laughs> and you can see that there's this sense where as a Prophet or a teacher or a expositor, you want to be appreciated for what you're saying. At the same time, the message is really clear. So even Paul says, "I don't write these things to shame you. I write them to admonish you." And in the NIV, it uses the word "warn," which, in English, those are two very different meanings: admonish versus warn. so, I'm not quite sure which way the Greek would go. Um, the difference is, is that he didn't say, I command you. He could have written, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but I command you as my beloved children. Like a father saying, Do it because I'm telling you to. I don't have to give you a reason. Yeah, well, he's going to the next chapter. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> Which is really interesting. Why he does this tug and pull, but I think in the context of this sentence, remember it's a letter. It's not written as um, uh, epigrams that are meant to be pulled apart or out of context, because his very next sentence: "For though you have had countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers." I became your father in Christ Jesus for the gospel. So if you put all three sentences together, you can see the warmth of what he's saying and the power of what he's saying. He says, I'm not writing to shame you, but I'm warning you like a father would, you cross the street against the red light, you're taking your life in your own hands. Trust me. Ah, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about step, 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 Err, bam, it's all over. Oops, well, you warned him, you admonished him, don't walk into traffic. But they went ahead anyway. It's one interesting, one writer put it this way, shame is not necessarily a negative thing. Shame is merely acknowledging that you have done something wrong. That's all it is. It's not to make you you feel bad. It is an act where you acknowledge, I was wrong. Hmm, I shouldn't have done that. And that, hopefully, could turn into repentance. But you can't understand you've done anything wrong unless somebody points it out to you in the first place. Or there's a standard by which you know you need to act. So he's speaking as if he's the father. He talks about these countless guides. Um, the word there is the is paidegogos. So you hear the word paideia, meaning to teach kind of thing or guide. Paideia is not teacher, that's diaskalos. Back in that day, especially among the more wealthy, the slaves would be in charge of being the pedagogos, the guide to the children. They would make sure they got to church, you know, to church on time, or got to school on time, and they had done their homework, kind of like a babysitter or caretaker. But they were not the one in the classroom actually instructing them. So they had guides. That means there's shepherds in the church, moving them along. You know, making sure they're kind of on the right path. There were a lot of them, but there's only one father of the church. And this one was founded by Paul. He says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It literally means in the Greek, I have begotten you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, he's he's laying claim and he has a right to lay that claim. And then he says, verse 16, "I urge you then, be imitators of me." I in my text, I put a big box around that verse, and a little question mark, and said, "Could I ever safely say that to anybody else?" <laughs> and that's really bold. It also can come across as really arrogant. I mean, Paul's been talking about these arrogant Corinthians, and here he comes along and goes, well, you guys are all wrong, but look at me. Follow me. I'm the one. No, that's, I'm, I'm injecting a sarcasm into that on purpose. That isn't what we have here, because he later... In chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This isn't a unique thing for him to say, but he's saying it in the context of being a father. A father can say to their son or daughter, You see how I'm doing this? Follow me, imitate what I'm doing. I am your example follow me. He's not saying follow me because I'm all that. He's saying follow me because I love you and I care for you and I am trying to walk this path so you can see the right way to go. Verse 17 That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved faithful and faithful child in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. This little phrase, "This is why I sent you," Timothy, um, has created no amount of consternation by the historians and the biblical scholars because they go, "We don't have a record of Timothy being sent by Paul anywhere in Corinth, anyway," or, or, the Greek word for "sent" could be "sent" as. Because the texts are not, um, they don't agree. Some it's aorist, meaning it happened in the past, and some are in present tense, means I am sending. So the English translators come to this and go, well, do we choose that he's sent Timothy in the past, or do we choose to say he's, Timothy is the letter carrier, that he's the one who has this letter in his hand and is taking it to Corinth himself to read it to them. Most fall under the former, the prior, meaning he sent Timothy in the past because in Acts chapter 19, verse 22, it says, having, he's in Ephesus, Paul is in Ephesus, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So it's possible that during that two to three year period in which he wrote Corinthians, he had sent Timothy over to Macedonia. Technically, Macedonia is Northern Greece and Achaia is Southern Greece, but you know, I highly doubt that they really cared about being that specific. He was sent over the ocean and Timothy may have made his way down You had a thought? Well, as he's writing this, it is a future event. But as they receive it, it's a past event. True. That's another way to look at it. The idea is though, how we don't know where, where Timothy comes into this, other than the fact that you can pretty much guarantee Timothy was there, speaking to them on behalf of Paul, showing them and reminding them of my ways. And that phrase, my ways, has a parallel to the Hebrew word of halakha means walking. And if you think of Ephesians, where he talks about walk worthy, if you remember Pastor Del Hussein would end the service, we don't walk worthy, quoting that passage. This is a, it's an echo of that concept that he is reminding them that Paul, In in every effort he had would be to show people how to walk in Christ. And I teach them everywhere and in every church. Some, verse 18, are arrogant as though I weren't coming to you. But I will come to you soon. So this obviously means a report has come back to him that there's those in the church saying he's abandoned us. Paul has abandoned us. He was our, he was our founder, but he's never coming back. You know, the guy's just a blowhard. Follow me instead. I, You know, when the guy's gone, someone's got to take over. I think of our pastor here in Tajikistan. He's saying two years he's been in jail well who's been taking charge now it's a poor illustration but you get the idea somebody's got to be leading the church it could be the lay people there could be another pastor's been brought in but you have here some are actually going he's abandoned us and he's never coming back even if he gets out of jail you see the the the, uh, parallel of sorts and Paul basically counters going, no, I, I'll be there as the Lord's wills. And I'll find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. In other words, when I'm there, we'll see how powerful these arrogant talkers really are. Are they just, uh, as they say in Texas, they're all hat and no cattle? <laughs> a great line (laughs) it's the arrogant who love to talk but they have absolutely no substance in what they say they're all hat and no cattle for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power so what do you wish? shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now, there is a parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 21, the very last phrase. It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, which reads, Brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Same phrase, same Greek construction this idea of the spirit of gentleness. Obviously they would prefer him to show up with the spirit of gentleness, not with the rod. So we turn to chapter five. Chapter five is not a happy chapter. In fact, if you were to ask people for their favorite section of scripture, they probably would vote for Psalm 23 or maybe the lord's prayer this one never gets voted for this is really an unhappy chapter you don't in fact in it was uh, this this website that i use for some of my research called preceptaustin.org they've probably got i don't know 40 different either comment commentators uh with the text actually on the page or sermon series from dozens and dozens of dozens of conservative scholars and preachers. I was a little startled when I was doing my preliminary work that there were five of them that skipped this chapter in their sermon series on 1 Corinthians. They skipped it. They skipped chapter five and chapter six and then went on. It was like, well, that's interesting. You know, what What was the, you know, it could be one thing, like, the recorder didn't work. That has happened to me. You, in fact, if you go and, you know, look at the altar website, you'll find there's a couple pla- places where I say audio is missing. It's because I left it on my counter when I left, or the battery died in the middle of the class. I mean, I'm paranoid about this now. Um, but... Yeah, so it could be that the recordings were just lost, okay? But it was just odd to have more than one skip this chapter. So let's look at it, because we're here and we're not going to skip it. It is actually reported. Now stop right there. That is a really interesting phrase. It is actually reported. Not it was kind of reported or it was rumored to be, it is actually reported. That word, halos, h-o-l-long-o-s, halos does mean the word actual or actually, and it removes any question about the truth of the, the the succeeding statement. Another way to phrase it is, there is no doubt that this is true. This isn't rumor, this isn't innuendo, this isn't gossip. We have heard this, and it has been reported, and has been backed up by multiple witnesses, that there is pornea among you. That's the word sexual immorality, the Greek word pornea. And it is of a kind that is not tolerated, even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And everyone says, "Ew, that's just gross. Greek word has is actually, doesn't tell you that it's present tense and should be translated for a man is having. A man is having his father's wife. Now, it doesn't say he's having his mom or his mother. He's having his father's wife, so that suggests what? A A stepmother. We don't know if the father's alive. It's not indicated, there's no comment here. He's either alive or he's dead. We don't know if there's a divorce involved. We don't know anything of the circumstances. We just have this activity in and of itself is being roundly condemned. And it says, it's not even tolerated even among the pagans. Well, let's not go to the pagans first. Let's go to the Bible. In Leviticus mm-hmm. chapter 18, so you can just make a note in the margin of your Bible or on your page, verses 7 and 8. It's an entire, the entire chapter, the chapter is about unlawful sexual relations. None of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Verse 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Very specific. Well, he makes this claim that even the pagans don't can't handle this well let's go back to Cicero Cicero is a hundred years before Paul a Roman uh, historian teacher Uh, he described with disgust the marriage between a mother-in-law and a son-in-law considering it unspeakably vile this is the quote Oh, to think of the woman's sin. Interesting, he doesn't talk about the man's sin. He talks about the woman's sin here. Anyway, unbelievable. Unheard of in all experience except for this single instance. To think of her wicked passion, unbridled, untamed. To think that she did not quail, if not before the vengeance of heaven. This is a secular writer. The vengeance of heaven or the scandal among men. The Romans actually had the law on the books that this was improper. The punishment was to be banished to an island. Basically kicked out of society and stuck off in some barren island somewhere. And if you think about it, it goes all the way back to Homer's Oedipus story where the king of Thebes ends up not, not really understanding that he killed his father and married his mother. And when she discovered it, she hung herself. But you have this gross connection that was turned into the movie of the day. It, was, it won an Oscar back in 400 B.C when they had Oscars. Of course, that's when it all started. But anyway, it was, a, you know, it was their literature, and they're talking about this horrific thing, and it, it, the society knew that this was a horrible thing. And yet here, it's happening in the church. I'll get to that more about that in a second. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So let's look at the words here. The word arrogant, it's a Greek word physio. It literally means puffed up. It is used seven times in the entire New Testament six of them in 1 Corinthians. He's already used it three times. We just read it. We just read two of them. Chapter 4, verse 6, he talks about, um, it is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. Verse 18, which we just read, some of you are arrogant as though I'm not coming. And verse 19, uh, I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. Same word. And then here we are in chapter 5. He talks about them being arrogant. He writes, he says it again in chapter 8, verse 1, and again in chapter 13, verse 4. And the only other time it's used in the New Testament is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Obviously, he has landed on this word as their motto. it's their brand name. This is the arrogant church. You can flip over, and you don't have the same word being used. Um, Where is it? The church to Laodicea. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. You're neither hot nor cold. Because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, and realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may may be rich, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent not a new concept. The church in Laodicea is guilty of being proud of their riches. The Corinthian people were very proud of their riches and their wealth and their success. He's not saying they're proud of having this weirdo in their congregation. The the arrogance is a generic term about the entire congregation as a whole but it's a symptom of the problem that's here. It allowed this man to go unpunished and unchecked. So the question comes, why did they let this happen? What would be your theory if you were reading this and saying, oh, that's terrible. He's a bad guy, he needs to get out there, but wait a second, how did he get in there in the first place? What do you think? you become the New Testament scholars today. What's your thought? Why would they let this continue unabated? Possibly. He could have been a very wealthy donor. Not willing to confront. Hmm? Not willing to confront. Not willing to confront them, saying, yeah, let's just not make waves, you know. We don't want to have a church split. These are all valid and, unfortunately, very modern reasons. They want to show how inclusive they were. Oh, exactly. How gracious they were, how inclusive they were, how loving they are as a church, and tolerant. I mean, this is a problem that's a, you know, you, you have to realize he has spent four chapters Setting up of how arrogant and how troubled this church is at their core. They're acting like babies. They're not mature in the faith. And then he goes, and oh, by the way, here's exhibit number one. Because he has more exhibits. This isn't the only thing he's chiding them for. We'll get to the rest in the other chapters. But this is exhibit number one, the most egregious of them all, because it's one that even the pagans wouldn't even stand for. Now here's an interesting thought one guy brought up. He said, think of it this way. You have these Romans, the, the culture, now granted Corinthian, the, the Corinth culture, uh, when it came to sexuality, it was, a, let's just call it lax, for, the, for uh, lack of a better word, uh, because they had the, you know, the temple of Aphrodite at the top of the hill and there was a lascivious uh, society. But even they would look at this and go, um, no, no, we have it on our books, we have it in our laws. This is, this is simply wrong. Oh, the church is doing it? You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. I was listening to one sermon that was very old, actually, because he kept referring to the falling, the fallen televangelists. Because if you remember back about 25 years ago, it was seemingly every week some (laughs) major TV evangelist was being shown in some horrible situation and it was a blow after blow after blow after blow to Christianity as a whole. Because if you were a Christian at that time You say oh yeah well that's those guys it's just kind of weird and everyone go but aren't you in that tribe well yeah but they don't represent us really they use the same words they have the big churches and you go to a big church aren't they the same because from the outside they don't know the difference I don't know the difference between a Baptopalian and an Episcopalian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good, you're listening. (laughs) Um, So here you have this egregious thing. Now, I also wonder in that because it would have been awful And I, I'm just trying to speculate here so I, I'm trying to figure out if it's that bad that must have been kept secret and then it was un, unveiled somehow the secret of this relationship was unveiled so it could be the two of them had come to the congregation everyone welcomed them in and then it was brought up oh by the way did you know that's his stepmom and everyone went what Well." already in so i guess it's okay because otherwise if it was that egregious and that public this the world the public public would have condemned it but anyway be that as it may the church is letting it go on one writer put it this way it's just this is so well stated the guy's name is bob deffenbaugh he writes whatever happened to sin? I mean years ago a secular psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin? And even this psychiatrist realized that evil had become become too psychologized and that a simple diagnosis of sin is actually what's needed. I can imagine the kinds of diagnosis we would have today for the malady of this Corinthian man living with his father's wife. We would delve into his past and probably find some excuse for abuse. Some would argue that he must have some kind of genetic predisposition, a biological predisposition, for this kind of conduct. Others would argue that his conduct is normal and that the problem is the church because they're so narrow-minded. And those who would buy into a therapeutic mentality would prescribe long, intensive, and expensive therapy. And many would would say, I'm sure, that the man's problem is poor self-esteem and the cure for him is to feel better about himself. And that would certainly mean that church discipline would be considered harmful rather than helpful. But for Paul, the diagnosis is simple and so is the prescription. The problem is the sin of immorality and the prescription is to remove him from the church. When the Bible is the standard for conduct and it is viewed viewed and used for defining sin and righteousness, the diagnosis of a man's problem is rather simple. He goes on. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And you have to stop there and see, well, Paul views himself as a member of this congregation. He's their spiritual father, even though he's not there in person. But he's there to, you know, make it sound uh, casual but he's there in spirit we use that now as a cliche now that almost has lost meaning but when Paul said it, he meant it. <laughs> this wasn't just a casual toss-off comment he said I'm, I'm with you this is why I asked you before imitate me there is a standard on what it means to be a Christian you've seen it and I've already pronounced judgment whoa wait Bible says you shall not judge, doesn't it? The Bible says that, right? Have you had that thrown at you by your teenager or by uh, someone with whom you are having a conversation? They say, what's your problem? Don't judge me. It has become the default defense argument for any sort of confrontation. And yet, chapter 4, verse 5, actually 4 and 5, I'm not aware of anything against myself. I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, don't pronounce judgment before it's time. So he's talking about judgment. Oh, I heard some very interesting sermons from a couple different preachers on the issue of judgment and judging. And of course, we all know that you can't say don't judge me because that's misreading the context of that entire section in Matthew. There's so much more after it that explains it. At the same time, you have situations where, um, in fact, we can look at it later. I'll I'll bring the passage later in the text where it says to you should judge those within the church, but not those outside. And I think that context is actually in the form, is it under the context of church discipline? Because it bothered me a lot. There was one, one pastor, I was listening to him, and there was a Q and A after the, uh, this, the, the teaching session. And somebody asked in the back of the con- in the back of the room and said, "Sir, I'm just curious. It says here you should judge those within the church, and I get that, but that you shouldn't judge those without that are outside the church, because as you said, they didn't sign up for this. Uh, you didn't sign up for it. So what's, what's the criteria of behavior? in our society, nobody signed up for anything. That means anything goes, and it's perfectly okay until you get inside the church, and then we can be all judging. And the guy then said, so what about those uh, radical Muslims that are blowing up people and lopping off their heads? Shouldn't we be judging that? And the, the pastor said, no. And I, I hit the off button on my car. Listening to this, I went, wait, what did I just hear? I know what he's trying to say. We should be loving and welcomed all who come, or who God brings to us, and puts into our path when we we talk to them. But do we then jettison the Ten Commandments and say we can't say to them what you're doing is wrong? Because to say that is a judgment, isn't it? What you are doing, cutting off people's heads, is wrong. That's a judgment. Based on what? Do not murder. Do not murder. Well, that's the Bible. And they say, but he didn't sign up for that. So he could be a serial killer. And we could say, that's wrong. According to what? You start getting to some deep weeds when you try to get into the language related to do not judge. I believe, personally, that it is perfectly okay to condemn bad behavior. I mean, seriously, there are some really bad eggs out there. I I don't know if you saw I don't even know if it's in the major news, but it was in a news feed that I follow, that yesterday um, the police were called to a man's home who had died on September 3rd, so just two weeks ago. The family, you know he was living by himself, uh, the family came to go through his belongings and he was an abortion doctor, had been his whole career and they found 2,600 formaldehyded fetuses in his home. That's disgusting! It's grotesque! It is, I'm sorry, I'm being really judgy right now, but that is flat out wrong. I mean, for one thing, there's an abortion doctor to start with, but the fact that he kept body parts as a collector? Even worse, he's selling them. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah but that's been documented of late. And the, they, they sell these body parts. But here you have this very sick man. So where's the outrage in the, uh, the news community? I only saw it because I have this particular Christian news feed that I follow had it as their main headline. I would never have heard about because I searched. I went over, you know, ABC, CNBC, all the other places, dead silence. <laughs> you just want to go, okay, I'm sorry, but at some point you just had to say, there are things in the world that we have to stand up and say, no, that is not right. But that's not the context in which we're speaking here, so I, you know, that was a nice little five-minute rabbit trail. Yep. Uh, you have a thought? I think it's very much feeding into Satan's, you know, whole method yeah. to keep Yeah. Be tolerant. Be loving. <clears throat> Here's the key word now. Be affirming. And that's related to the gay community. You know, someone can come to the congregation and they say, well, where's your stance on, you know, on gay rights and all that? And said, well, we believe that the Bible's very clear that it's a sin. Oh, you're not affirming, you're hypocrites. And then they leave and go find a church that does. I wonder if Paul would write that church and say, it has been reported that there is rampant immorality among you and that multimillionaire gay guy is the one that needs to be confronted. Could that be very likely? Yeah, I imagine it would be. And I imagine those that might hear this who are not part of our congregation would say, man, you're just not tolerant. No, I have no tolerance for sin. I follow the scriptures. Scriptures are awfully clear about this. So he says, I pronounce judgment on this one from a long ways away. I don't even need to be there. I can tell you right now, it's wrong. When it comes to church discipline, and of course I heard many taking this section and then going into long discussions about uh, church discipline and how that works. And I'll address that a little bit more in the in, in these next verses. But one thing that's very clear is that Paul is at... According to this report, he's at the last stage of what church discipline takes. Church discipline is a process. We follow that process starting in Matthew 18, where it says you go to the person, then you go with two, and you, 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 you make every effort to correct or to put them on notice or to say this is wrong, you need to change your behavior and use something. But now Paul is at the end of that. It's not the first thing you do. We hear this rumor that, you know, you've been doing this. Get out. Well no, that's not the right way. You then go and you find out what is the free the, What are the facts? It goes back up to chapter five verse one. It is actually reported. There is beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is what's going on. And then verse 4, it's very clear, Paul is talking not personally, but corporately as the body. Notice what he says. When you are assembled, that is when the church is gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the authority, and my spirit is present, means he's there in spirit as part of this, with the power of Jesus, the power of our Lord Jesus, then, the word then isn't there, but that's what I'm emphasizing, you are to deliver this man to Satan. So it's not he's not writing him going, well, I'm the final judge, kick the guy out. No, he says, as a body, this isn't just me talking, you have to agree with me, as a church, that this is wrong. You see the difference? This isn't just Paul asserting authority from thousands of miles away. He is asserting authority and then saying, as you assemble together as a unit, as a body, you then rid yourself of this person in the body. Make very clear, Paul isn't being arrogant and just saying making a pronouncement. He is asking them to be part of this process. Now this phrase, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Fascinating phrase. It's used one other time in the New Testament. It's over in First Timothy, chapter one, verse twenty. Uh, let's see, you have among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul has used this, uses this same phrase later in his writings. So let me ask you because this is your class. What does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? What does that mean? Especially, well, no, let's start with that. And then try to also answer the statement, what does it mean, the destruction of the flesh? So you hand him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What in the world is Paul talking about? you take him out, you take him out of the congregation, and you let him go. And mm-hmm. don't have anything to do with him, because it's going to talk about that. Right. Kind of like, um, and you let the consequences fall upon him that need to happen, so that there's a chance for there to be repentance. Right. Because if you keep coddling, if you keep the friendships going, if you keep him thinking he's still part of the body, He will never reap what he has sown, and so he will never be brought to the point of needing God and needing to confess, be convicted, and repent. That's right. So handing over to Satan, it's not a metaphor, and yet it is a metaphor. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. When you take someone out of the body of believers, out of the spiritual protection that the community can bring together, and you place them out here, like you said, the consequences then should, hopefully, become evident. That's the whole point. It's not just to say we're, we need to stay pure and we're perfect. We do. We also cannot coddle. We cannot affirm. We cannot just let it slide. And hopefully he won't get mad at us. It has to be confronted. So that there is an attempt to destroy the flesh. Now the word flesh can mean the sinful nature. There are some that says he means that he's going to be killed. I don't think that's what Paul meant. Because if that were the case, he wouldn't um, ask people to not have dinner with him. Uh, that would be kind of foolish. You know the guy's going to die. Why make an appointment? Anyway. Well, you also have the way the Bible layers of its meanings. Yes, flesh is sinful nature. But if you go back to Job, where Satan demands to have Job, mm-hmm. and he cannot, you do anything, but he, he can't touch his, his, he can't have his life. Right. And in that, he can't have his soul. Yeah. He's not gonna, Joe. The Lord knows that Joe will already be faithful. Mm-hmm. But in this, it's it's somebody in the church, and and of course, yes, it, it breaks down. But it is that kind of double layer of um, the, Satan's power. But the power determined the power to determine death does not come from Satan. No, it does not. And, and so. I wrote here, I said, inside a community of believers, there's a corporate worship and an accountability and a common war against the world, against Satan. Put outside that community, they become under the rule of Satan, of the, who is the ruler of the world, and the spiritual protection is removed. William Barclay made an interesting comment about church discipline, and You know, having been at Camelback all these years, I can think of at least three, maybe four, maybe more. I mean, after a while you forget where the body was called together after a service. And it was brought up very publicly and by name, a person that had been kicked out for behavior that they were unrepentant about and they could no longer have them as part of the church and they basically said please don't have dinner with him i mean we've done everything we can to show him the error in his ways and it you know just whoa it's kind of startling it's a little disturbing as a church member to hear this but you also realize the grief that has gone into this process with the elders. That goes back up to chap- verse 2 of chapter 5. Ought you not rather to mourn? These are people that they take a long process and they work really hard to restore. One pastor that I was listening to, he, said, he says, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but there was a, there was, there's someone who actually in our church right now who we brought them under discipline. And we took them out of the leadership roles that they had in the church. And basically said, you're not welcome here until you get your life put together and get your act right. And he's here now, and he's teaching. And he's mm-hmm. a vital part of this congregation. And He says, you'll never be able to figure out who it is because we're a church of 5,000 people, so please don't try to guess says but it does work it can work the soul can transform it is possible and he said the thing about church discipline is some not it's not just for the body and yes that's the first thing but it's also for the individual they may not realize how bad what they're doing really is in their world it's like what's the big deal why are you upset about that? I mean, it's just a fling. Do you not see what you're doing? No. What's the big deal? But then it's pointed out. Well, da, 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 da. <clears throat> we embark. Restoration of right. the soul, right. because who destroys the soul? It has to come across harshly because it is a pronouncement of judgment and exactly. punishment. But it's for their good, right? Think so of you. Think of you, think yourself good. as a parent. How often have you said, "This is for your own good," mm-hmm. and they look at you, and go, "It doesn't feel like it right now. I feel like I've just been, well, you know, really put through the woodshed." Well, it's for your own good. William Barclay said, church discipline is not to break the man, but to make the man. I thought that was a brilliant turn of the phrase. It's not to break them, it's to make them. And discipline should never be exercised for the satisfaction of the wielder. See what we've done? Wow, we're really holy people, aren't we? golly, we got rid of that bad egg. Aren't we that? See, here's the danger. You've already got an arrogant church. Imagine they start getting rid of the bad element and now they're gonna be really arrogant. Well, he's saying that should not happen. Never vengeful, always curative. The idea of it cures them. And another wrote this way, to exercise church discipline is to acknowledge that you have done all that you can and the efforts have failed. All you can do is proclaim the message of Christ crucified, the deadly consequence of sin, and know that only God through the Holy Spirit can save and sanctify. Well, it goes on. Your boasting, going back to this arrogance, is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, I'm reading that and I'm going, okay, I don't know anything about baking. But the little I do know is that the leaven is like the yeast that makes the bread rise. And it's a fermented um, item, correct? It's fermented. And when it happens, it permeates the entire loaf. You put one tiny bit in there and the entire batch of dough is poisoned, for lack of a better word. It's infected by the leaven. That's his point here. That man is leaven. He needs to be removed so that you can be pure. You can be cleansed. But then he has this phrase, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And it doesn't seem to follow the context. Because he's talking about leaven, talking about leaven, and then suddenly he blurts out this phrase and doesn't explain it. Well, that's because a lot of the people in the room are Jewish. And they know exactly what Passover was. Passover was you had to find unleavened bread in the home and apparently part of the game today for the Jewish people is they tell the children to try to find any leaven in the house and they, they it's like a treasure hunt they go high, you know all the nooks and crannies to make sure there's no leaven at all in the house so that their bread is unleavened and pure And the reason why unleavened bread is used in the Passover is to remind them they had to leave Egypt so fast they couldn't bring their leaven with them. So that's the whole point. Not because they don't want good tasting bread. They just, it's a reminder of that time. Well, Christ is the Passover lamb. He is the unleavened one, the pure one, who then was sacrificed for our sins. That's what that phrase means. Oh um, this is cut for bar. You know, it's because they're always baking their bread, you know, in the in the store and it's <laughs> it just permeates everything. It's everything, yeah. And, and So even the tiniest bit can permeate, and that's his metaphor of sin. Uh, Galatians five nine says, "A little leaven leavens the whole lump," and this is not new concept for Paul to be writing about. I actually thought of it. It's not the perfect illustration, but it—I thought of it anyway. So yesterday, the car battery dies in Lisa's car. So I go. And I, I was actually thinking about it as I was preparing the, the, this lesson last night. And I thought, okay. So I came up to the car. You know, I turn the thing and hear the click, 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 click. Oh, battery's dead. And I, you know, pop the hood, look at it. You know, the connections are strong. So obviously, the battery's dead. You know, without that battery, that's just a big piece of iron that's completely useless. Completely useless it's not even a good place to sleep, you know? And it's a 22 year old car, so it's really not that nice to look at either. And it's useless, you put a new battery in it and permeates the whole car and everything works in perfect order. But you know, you stare at it, there was air in the tires. So think about it as a picture of the church. Everything looks fine. It looks in working order, the doors open, the locks work, um, you know, I mean the seats are clean, you know, the storage, you open the engine, the engine's clean, you know, look, there's oil in it, everything looks fine, but there is something wrong. In this case, it's the battery. Now, the metaphor isn't perfect to this illustration, but it's that idea is that one thing makes the rest of it useless even though from the outside it looks just fine. Take a church, drive by any church in this valley, and they look great from the outside. The lawn is mowed, people are going in and out, but is there something wrong inside there? So let's celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, And that word sincerity is a Greek word that means to examine something in sunlight. Bring it out, everything you have, so it can be examined in the clear light of day. And that is what is necessary. And I've run out of time again. Okay, well. Can I go back to the... Yes, you can. I don't know why I just find it humorous that it says, you know, clean out the old leaven, and I've always thought, so that you may be a new lump, I mean, actually, new lump first church, you know, you just, you know, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we've never called ourselves the new lump, <laughs> the first lumpy church of of Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, We usually don't like to find lumps, we would rather them to be excised from us, uh, but yes, it is rather humorous, well. Obviously, we didn't quite finish. There really wasn't a whole lot more, but I'll, I, I won't skip it next week when we come back to this. Let's pray for our time. Thank you for our time, Lord, to and dig into your Word and have, let's listen to what you have to say to us. It's so easy for us to say, look at them. Look at what they're doing. Look how bad they are. And forget that we need to first examine ourselves and make sure we are in good stead that we can say to someone imitate me if we're reluctant to say that to someone then we need to think twice about where we stand and how we are acting and how we proclaim your name in this world in jesus name amen